How's everybody doing today? Happy New Year. To those of you watching online or the West Campus, and you can clap for that, that's fine. That's, I'm excited. This is a good day, right, guys? If you don't know me, my name is Jeremy, like you heard earlier. And uh, I've been here for about three years, moved here with my family, my wife, Brielle. And uh, we have a seven-year-old, Hadley, a five-year-old son named Easton, and a two-year-old son named Braxton. And we've really, really enjoyed being here and enjoyed our Christmas celebration and New Year's and digging into, like, anybody do New Year's resolutions? Is that still a thing? No? A couple of you. One? Okay, good. Well, so that's good. Um, how many of you husbands out there are still waiting for your spouse to lovingly suggest what your New Year's resolutions are? Anybody? Okay, good. Okay, guys, here's the deal. I'm not a funny guy. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. So uh, I actually just, uh, just Googled some jokes. So that way, if they're not funny, you can blame Google. Um, I'm just going to read them to you. Here we go. Every New Year's Eve, I look forward to a really good show at Times Square, but year after year, they just drop the ball. They only get worse from there. Buckle up. My friend asked me where I see myself in the new year, and I said, how would I know? I don't have 20-20 vision. Yikes. Uh, I can't wait until New Year's Day 2021, because then we're going to be able to actually say hindsight is 2020. You guys saw that one coming. I saw somebody's nodding his head already before I got there. 2020 is going to be filled with a lot of puns about vision, but I can't see all of them. Should have passed on that one. Okay, so jokes aside, the truth is I'm really excited for this year. Uh, there's a lot of things actually that I'm excited for. I'm excited that my Chiefs got the number two seed in the playoffs, and so uh, that gives us a bye week right out of the gate. That's good news. Thank you, Miami. I'm excited for the live action Mulan coming out in a few months. That'll be good. And I'm really, really excited for what we're going to be digging into as a church together this year. Hopefully by now you've heard that our mission, we've said, is to, that we exist to live and love like Jesus. And I love how when we started this conversation, there were some great questions that came up uh, just in our conversation. Questions like, who is this Jesus? How exactly did he live in love. And so we felt like the best answer to that question was just to take a slow walk through one of the gospels, the gospel according to John, to be able to answer who is Jesus and how did he live in love. So if you ask the question, why focus on one of the gospels? I think we have to start by defining that word. Because the truth is that word is kind of a religious word and we all bring some kind of context or baggage to that word. So if we can, let's just try and set that aside for now. Uh, let's talk about what the gospel is not. Gospel is not just a music genre, although it's been used that way. The gospel is not a get out of hell free card. The gospel is not just good advice on how to live. You see the word that we have translated as gospel in our Bibles is actually a Greek word called euangelion, and it means good news. Good news. Doesn't sound so complicated. It's actually what a first century herald would go around proclaiming. If your country won a victory of war or if you had a new king seated on the throne, they would go around and proclaim the euangelion, the good news of what had happened. There was an amazing discovery made in the 19th century called the Calendar Inscription of Priene. It was dated back to 9 BC, so just about a decade before Jesus entered the scene. It was a Greco-Roman decree that proclaimed the euangelion, the good news, the birth of Caesar Augustus. It said things like how he was going to be filled with virtue and how he was sent as a savior for humankind. It actually says this, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the euangelion, the good news for the world. Can you believe that? In 9 BC, 
This was a huge deal. This got proclaimed throughout the entire empire. So you can imagine the audacity of Jesus' followers taking this idea and ascribing it to him. Many scholars believe that the first line of Mark's gospel was actually a direct uh, challenge to this document. Mark starts out by writing to Christians in Rome and says this, the beginning of the good news, the euangelion, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So why take 2020 to walk through a gospel? Well, the obvious answer is because it centers around the person of Jesus. But additionally, history really seemed to be building toward this moment. You see, for centuries, God's people had been exiled out of Israel into the nation of Babylon. Babylon ruled most of the known world until they were conquered by Persia, who was then conquered by Alexander the Great in one of his many conquests. And eventually, Roman rule takes over. The Roman road system, transportation, and the expansion of Rome. When the Gospels were written, Greek was becoming an international language. During the life of Jesus, Israel was back in their homeland, but they were under Roman occupation, really asking the question, who are we now as God's people? We're not in charge of ourselves anymore. So it became this identity crisis for the nation of Israel. They remember things like how their prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, proclaimed, uh, prophesied about the good news of a long-awaited king coming to rescue his people. So you see, Jesus enters a powder keg moment. I hope by now you're starting to realize that trying to focus in on the book of John is not going to restrict us just to this book. There's actually these ideas that I've heard referred to as hyperlinks in the New Testament, if you've ever been on like a Wikipedia page, you see it's just littered with links and you can kind of trace ideas back down the rabbit hole to see exactly what uh, the, the context is. The same thing is true of the New Testament. Four gospels are full of hyperlinks that are just hidden at subtle nods toward the Old Testament that first century readers would have gotten right off the bat, but it requires a little bit of extra work for us. Let's take a look at a couple examples. John chapter one, verse one starts out by saying, in the beginning. And so right away, you have to stop and think, okay, that sounds a little familiar. If you know the first three words of your Bible are in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So it sets a trajectory right out of the gate. It'd be like me starting my sermon by saying, I have a dream. You start to think, oh, okay, I know where he's going with this. <clears throat> so a first century reader would read this and think, okay, so the story I'm about to read is connected to the story around, my, around which my entire worldview is based. Then there's some more obvious hyperlinks, like John chapter 1, verse 23, where John tells us exactly who he's quoting. He says, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So as the reader, you have to look and think, is this person the one that Isaiah was talking about? Is this the continuation of this long unfolding story that I've heard about my entire life? We're entering into the climax of that story and we need the Old Testament to set the groundwork for us. Okay, so the gospel is more than a get out of hell free card. It's more than good advice. It's good news. Great. What is the news? Well, the good news is simply this. The story that Jesus is God himself, that he came as Israel's long awaited king. He died for the sin of the world and was raised to life. And now he's the king of the entire universe, putting all the wrong things back to right again for good. And so that sounds great. What does that actually mean? And that's where the four gospel writers come in. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are four different authors, four different stories, four different perspectives really on one unified story. 
the story of Jesus. It'd be like if me and a few of my friends went to a Chiefs game. I thought about telling the story about going to a Colts game, but I thought it was only appropriate to use a team whose season hasn't already ended yet. So, so we go to, don't clap for that. You're going to get me in trouble. So let's imagine that myself, Andrew Bondurant, who's on staff here with me, Bill Altman, and our fearless leader, Phil Heller, all go to a Chiefs game together. I'm going to come away telling stories about how Patrick Mahomes, our quarterback, just cannot be stopped. He's got that wicked sidearm, and if you rush on him, he's going to go outside the pocket where he's more dangerous. You don't want to mess with it. Andrew is going to come away talking about how he knows every single player, where they went to college, and reciting their stats from memory, making people like me feel like a giant dummy. Bill is going to make sure you remember how much he had to pay for that hot dog and Coke because it's probably more than $10 or so. Phil is going to remark on the coach and his strategy. And he even said that he was going to make sure and come home with some souvenir cups and buckets, uh, empty buckets of popcorn for use at home, that kind of stuff. What you have is you have four different people telling four different perspectives on the same story. And the gospels work the same way. Think about Matthew. Matthew tells the story of Jesus, uh, but he wants to make sure that you come away knowing that God is a promise keeper. And he uses multiple Old Testament references, miracles, and prophecies to prove it. Mark tells that same story, but remember, like I said earlier, he was framing it for a specific audience of persecuted Christians living in Rome. Luke was a doctor, which means he was highly detailed in his account. He wrote the first of a two-volume set, the second volume being the book of Acts, And he wanted to make sure that you came away knowing that this was the fulfillment of God's plan to bring light to the world. So what about John? Well, John is unique, actually. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered what are called the synoptic gospels, which basically means that they share a lot of uniformity, but John stands apart. John has a specific purpose. He tells us that purpose in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which we'll dig into a little bit later. John's unique because he doesn't try to be chronological in any way. Uh, We know that Jesus came and cleansed the temple and scholars all agree that this happened toward the end of his life. But John puts that story way up in chapter two. So you see he's doing something a little different. He doesn't let you slowly discover Jesus' identity. Matthew or Mark kind of let the, the long story, the narrative unfold who Jesus is. But John comes right out of the gate and says that Jesus is the word of God. He was with him in the beginning and he was God. Many say that John is uniquely accessible as a book of the Bible. It's often recommended as a great place to start for first-time readers, but if you've been reading the Bible for any number of years, I don't want you to think you're going to get bored, not by a long shot. You see, John is a bit like the ocean. Uh, My family and I went to the ocean a few months ago, and guys, let me tell you, I hate sand so much. It gets everywhere. But as a father of three... I love the ocean. And the reason why is because there's something for everybody. My two-year-old Braxton, he loves to sit right at the edge of the water where the waves will come up and just splash on his feet and he can kind of splash around. Easton can go down into the water with his bucket and fill it up and use it to make sand castles up on the beach. Hadley, my seven-year-old, however, she can get down into the water about waist deep and let the waves throw her around a little bit. I, however, I heard about this sunken ship that was going to be right where we were staying, about 150 yards off the shore, and I got really excited. And so I bought like this cheap, janky set of uh, snorkeling gear and decided I was going to try and swim out to this thing. And you get there and it's a little overwhelming at first. You know, you see the waves coming in, it's intimidating, but like you kind of get used to it and keep pushing further and further around. Finally, I decided I'm going to try it. So I put on my snorkeling gear and I start swimming out. And let me tell you guys, it was breathtaking. 
the fish were beautiful. The history of the boat just seemed to come to life. Does anybody actually believe this is true? (laughs) Nope. The truth is I tried it. I got about 50 feet off the shore and saw a fish. It was probably a stingray, so don't judge me if a baby, but the thing is I hightailed it back to shore. I was done. John is a bit like the ocean, except for that stupid fish. John allows you to take your first reading and you see that it's awesome. You see Jesus for who he truly is. You may even figure out how to discover this life that he has for us. But if you've been reading this book for years, you can still find that there is an immeasurable depth to it. Take, for example, Jesus healing a blind man in John chapter 9. Your first layer one surface level reading of the story will reveal that Jesus healed a blind man. That's amazing. It's a little obvious. You keep studying and you realize, okay, there's a deeper layer here. You remember that this story starts by Jesus alluding to day and night and even calls himself the light of the world. The story ends with Jesus alluding to unbelief as a sort of blindness. And you realize, okay, there's more happening here. You remember that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night and left unwilling to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And then you remember that Jesus met the Samaritan woman in the daytime. And not only did she believe, but she led her most of her entire town to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Okay, so there's something happening here. You keep studying and you realize there are actually hyperlinks back to the Old Testament. You remember that the battle of light versus darkness starts on page one when God speaks light into the darkness. And you remember how Isaiah talked about Israel's unbelief and prophesied it, um, referring to it as blindness. And once you start to notice these things, it will blow your mind. This specific example uh, was shown to me by a man named Dr. Tim Mackey. He's the co-creator of a group called The Bible Project. And they create really simple videos and resources for people like me to be able to understand the depth that is brought to these texts. And so I would encourage you, check it out. It is well worth your time. Because you see, the Bible authors were brilliant writers. John especially. Richard Hayes is the professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. And he wrote this quote that I think unpacks why John is such a beautiful piece of scripture and literature. And it's a little heady, but I think it's worth reading together. It says, if Luke, for example, is the master of the deft fleeting illusion, John is the master of the carefully framed luminous image that shines brightly against a dark canvas and lingers in the imagination. John is not attempting to compile the maximum number of Old Testament allusions. Rather, he prefers to focus on a single artistically selected instances that repay sustained meditation. I love that. And it's so true. The other gospels give you long lists with mathematical precision of miracles, fulfilling prophecies. But John gives you the more artistic, in-depth approach. See, John uses select signs and stories to show us who Jesus truly is. He gives us a heavy use of themes like his seven I am statements, where seven times Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. He uses themes like belief, life, water that run throughout the entire book. Even his structure is carefully crafted to walk you through the story. It starts with this beautiful introduction telling about who Jesus is. Followed by that, uh, following is Jesus' signs and miracles. And then there's this climactic moment right in the middle of the book where Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. 
And you realize that's kind of the beginning of the end because they, the Jewish leaders recognize that and Jesus goes into his famous last words or what's called the farewell discourse, about four chapters there uh, right after the raising of Lazarus. That's followed by his death and his resurrection. And then John concludes with a beautiful, beautiful epilogue that kind of wraps up this story. Matthew gives you many rapid fire signs, boom, 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 signs and teachings of what Jesus was about. John moves slowly through long drawn out encounters, conversations, curated signs for a specific purpose. And there's this key moment right after his resurrection and before the epilogue where John actually tells us the purpose for writing his book. Let's read it together. It's John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, where John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. How cool is that? John just comes right out and tells us his purpose for writing the book. So let's start with verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So you learn pretty quickly that John said no to a lot of really, really good content so that he could curate a specific list for a purpose. Remember the hyperlinks idea. John uh, used specific signs that would point to Old Testament prophecies like Jesus turning water into wine. First century readers would have recognized right away that wine was an allusion back to the coming kingdom of God. Isaiah says this, on this mountain, the Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Jesus did many different healings, and you would remember the Old Testament prophecies that say things like, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus fed the 5,000, which reminds us of how God provided for his people in the wilderness. And then lastly, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And we're reminded of how Isaiah said, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. So why these signs? Why these specific signs? Well, verse 31 gives us the answer to our question. It says that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, there's three words from this verse that I want to take some time to unpack for you today because I think they're really important. The first one is belief. Belief is a theme that reoccurs throughout this book. It could be translated to be persuaded of or to trust in. John uses this word 98 times so you can see the importance of it because when people encountered Jesus, they were often forced to make a choice to believe or reject him. New Testament scholar Gary M. Burge writes this, the trial of Jesus was not really taking place in a Jerusalem courtroom with Pilate or the high priest. The venue of Jesus' trial was in fact the entire world. Accusations have come and gone. Divine acts or signs with potent meanings have been given and we have watched as men and women have been divided. No one remained neutral. Think about the Samaritan woman or the official whose son was healed. Think about Jesus' disciples. They all came away believing in Jesus. Still, John says that some people saw his signs and did not believe. Almost every encounter ends with either belief or disbelief. 
until this final scene, right after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples and one of his closest friends, Thomas, had said, unless I see the scars, put my hands in the scars on his hands and in his side, I will not believe. Well, he was eventually given the opportunity to do just that. And he came away saying, my Lord and my God. John is writing so that we might believe. And remember, it's not so much what we believe, but rather who we believe in, which I think takes us to the second idea I want to take a closer look at today. And that is Jesus as Messiah, the son of God. And these two ideas combine to make something very unique. Jesus as Messiah makes him the would-be king of Israel, the anointed one. Jesus as the son of God elevates him above all of Israel's past kings. You see, to call Jesus merely king was not enough. John tells us that when Jesus finished feeding the 5,000, uh, the people tried to force him to be king and he ended up retreating into solitude on the mountain because Jesus didn't come to be Israel's king. He came to be the king of the world. So I think what's important for us is to try and step out of our modern Western mindset for just a second and step into the mindset of a first century perspective. D.A. Carson helped me with this when he said this, the fundamental question being addressed by the evangelist or John is not who is Jesus, which might be asked by either Christians or non-Christians, if with slightly different emphases, but rather who is the Messiah? You see, John's readers were expecting a Messiah they weren't expecting Jesus. There's actually a footnote in my Bible that gives an alternate way that this verse could be read. It could be read that these things are written so that you may believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. You hear the difference? It almost reverse engineers it a little bit. So let's, for just a moment, try and forget everything that you know about Jesus and pretend that you are a first century Jew who's never heard of Jesus, or at the most, You've heard about this guy who claimed to be the Messiah and uh, he was one in the long line of insurrectionists that claimed to be this Messiah for Israel. You've never heard of this, but what you have heard of is Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that God chose for himself when he revealed himself to us, his people. Yahweh is the creator God above all who is longing to restore his people and live in harmony with them again. You've heard of Adam, the father of humanity, made in the image of God and through whom sin entered God's good world. You've heard of Abraham. Abraham is the father of our nation. He had radical faith and obedience to Israel and God told him that through him, all nations throughout the world would be blessed. You've heard of Moses, our faithful leader, who God used to rescue uh, his people out of Egypt and through whom God gave us the law so that God could come and dwell in our midst. As a first century Jew, surely you remember our great King David, the anointed King of Israel. And although he did suffer, uh, succumb to sin and fail as a king, we're promised that our king would come from his line. You remember how king after king after king after king has failed, which eventually left us exiled out of our nation. You remember Isaiah, one of our prophets, he talked about how this king would come from David's line, saying things like, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Does any of that sound familiar? He talked about how this king would die for the sin of the world, and through his death, we would find healing. 400 years of waiting. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Roman occupation, Messiah figures rising up, revolting, killed, 
their followers scattered. Enter Jesus, saying things like, before Abraham was, I am. Saying things like, I must suffer and die. And you realize this is starting to sound familiar. Performing miracles and claiming equality with God. He even raised somebody from the dead. But then eventually, he was killed too, just like everyone else. But you keep reading and you realize his last and greatest sign. He was raised to life. He even appeared to some of his disciples. He eventually ascended to heaven and his followers, this ragtag group of his disciples started a revolution. Reading John's gospel forces you to make a choice. Okay, so let's pretend that we believe that Jesus is this long awaited king. What now? What does that have to do with me? And I think the answer to that question comes from the third idea that I wanna look into today, life. On many occasions, Jesus claimed to be life, the very source itself, which sounds like a weird idea, but it gets weirder. In this uh, chapter that we're reading, John chapter 20, right after Jesus is raised from the dead, he appears to his disciples and John says that he breathed on them. What? How weird is that? I think John's disciples probably would have recognized what he was doing. See, they would have remembered that the breath of life is a Yahweh thing. They would have remembered in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, where God created Abraham and breathed life into his nostrils. And John wants to make sure that we remember that as well because the word that we have translated as breathed, this is the only time this word, the specific Greek word is used in the New Testament. And it's the same Greek word used in Genesis chapter two. He's doing something very intentional. He wants us to know that Jesus is Yahweh, that he has this breath of life and that he's giving it out to his followers. So when Jesus does this, he says, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the assumption is that they were not yet alive. The same assumption is made about John's readers. You see, the Bible says that if you have not believed, then you are dead in your sin, but you can be made alive in Christ. This is part of what happens in baptism. You go under the water and the old self, the old you dies and you are raised up a new creation. And you're probably thinking like, oh yeah, that's, that's true for all those people who don't yet believe. But I think on some level, the same needs to be assumed of ourselves because we aren't as alive as we'd like to believe. We aren't as alive as he wants us to be. I think there's more to true flourishing life than we've made it out to be. My family and I have lived in Evansville for about three years now, like I said earlier, and we've loved it. We came to call this place home quickly because I mean, it's safe, great schools, strong Christian character throughout the moral compass of our city. The truth is this is one of the most churched cultures in America. And yet, Depression, suicide, and death due to drug overdose are among the highest here than they are in the entire country. How is this possible? Is it possible that there is a deeper measure of life to be found in the person of Jesus and his spirit? You see, true life begins when the spirit of God enters into and dwells within us, but that's just the beginning. There is always a deeper union to be found. Jesus is calling us to that deeper union. And until he has come and finished the renewal and reconciling of all creation, you and I are not done yet. 
Okay, so let's start wrapping this up. If Jesus is the Messiah, the God King on the throne of the universe, then life in his kingdom means living in this new kingdom reality, or rather this new kingdom mentality here and now. You see, this hour that we gather together every week is not really about this hour. There's 168 hours in a week. And we believe that this hour is, exists so that we can effectively engage the other 167 hours. See, the thing that my team and I focus most of our time on is our weekly gatherings together. Our hope is that we can create opportunities for us to be able to engage and encounter Jesus in a new, fresh, and real way each and every week. Because we believe that if we can encounter him together, then we will be able to encounter him in everything that we say and do throughout the rest of our week. So we put together songs and prayers and scriptures that will put the desire in our hearts and the words on our lips to be able to pursue God's mission through everything in life. This is just one example of what it means to live and love like Jesus. So if you call Crossroads home, you are choosing to live under the rule of Jesus, our King. We believe that the way of Jesus is not only the best way to live, but it's what we are created to do. So we are starting this journey together. A long, slow walk through the book of John to discover how to live in love like Jesus more each and every day. Jesus asked his followers if they believe. And sooner or later, as we study this together, the same question is gonna be posed to you. John, or rather God through his spirit, is gonna pose the question, do you believe? I wanna finish a quote I started earlier from Gary Burge. It ended by saying, no one remained neutral, but he goes on to say, some found Jesus' personal claims so outrageous that they were filled with rage and worked to sabotage him. Others observed his deeds and listened to his words and decided to believe that he indeed was God's messenger, his son, bearing divine truth for the world. The pressing question rests here. How will we stand in this parting of the crowd? You see, if you don't already believe, our hope is that through reading this book that you would come to believe, to put your trust in Jesus and discover what life in his name really means. If you already believe, the question's a little different. The question becomes, are you living like it's true? Is there anything in your life that you are unwilling to surrender to him? Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's because you know deep down that you shouldn't be with that guy or that girl. Students, I'm looking at you. What are you unwilling to surrender? Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's because you know that your paperwork at the end of the month will require a little bit more integrity if you choose to surrender that to Jesus. Maybe it's your free time. Maybe it's because you love ending your day with an hour or two of social media or Netflix, even though you just finished telling somebody that you wish you had more time to pray or read scripture. What are you unwilling to surrender? And I was convicted because lately I've been praying for more of Jesus. I've been praying for more of God in my life. And I felt like what God said to me was, I actually want more of you, Jeremy. What is God requiring of you? What are you unwilling to surrender? And would you surrender that to him? I just wanna end with these three challenges. If you have your journal with you today, um, take that out and you can write these down. The first challenge I wanna leave you with is to commit to the whole year. It's a long journey, but let's not stop short. Let's make this commitment together. Secondly, I want to uh, ask you to invite somebody to share with this journey with you. These things aren't meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done in community. 
So I want to challenge you to invite somebody. Lastly, I want to challenge you this week to read or listen to the entire book of John. I know that sounds crazy. It's about two or two and a half hours to read the entire book. And if you can set aside Netflix or Disney Plus or a football game or whatever for this week, we can all do this together. At the very least, download the YouVersion app on the App Store and you can listen to it read to you through your commute or uh, going to the store or whatever it is. We can do this. Let's this week commit to reading the book of John together. As we close, would you stand with me? Because I believe that if this is true, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then it demands a response. And we have the chance now to respond in worship together. Because we believe that Jesus is the king, that he is victorious and that light has defeated the darkness. So let's respond in worship together. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, I believe that you are who you say you are. That you are the God, the king on the throne and that we should not hold anything back. God, because you are faithful to your people. God, because you have defeated the darkness. Because you are worthy of our praise. And so God, we give it all back to you now in glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.